Today's discussion is about uh, the Shema. Uh, as we well know, the Shema is a very uh, important uh, prayer. It's essentially three paragraphs in the Torah uh, that were compiled as a prayer. And I think um, when we read it, we'll find that it's kind of a very uh, you know, handy review of Jewish philosophy. You know, we've talked a lot about Jewish philosophy uh, over here in this class. And when we go through it bit by bit, uh, we will find that like so many things that we've discussed in the past at great length are like talked about or hinted about or discussed in the Shema. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the Chafetz Chaim, so the author of that book that uh, I uh, advise everyone to get their hands on, I see John actually did, so he famously said a, a, a parable, like a, an analogy. And he said that there was this, um, this guy who owned the factory. And he was going on vacation for a couple of months. And he had some apprentice who was going to be in charge of the factory. Uh, and he tells him, listen, it's very important to remember all the rules of how to operate the complex machinery. Uh, and he, he says, I want you to make sure you, you, know, you have the rules, you write them down. And he says, you know what, I don't want you to write them down. I want you also to, uh, you know, take a... Uh, take a, uh, a scroll and put it on every doorpost of the instructions. And not only that, I want you to actually make a little contraption where you can attach the instructions to your arms and your head, and I want you to repeat it every day. And then the guy came back uh, three months later, like, what happened to the factory? It's in shambles. He says, uh, I don't know, I was trying to operate. He says, weren't you reading the instructions? Didn't I tell you to read them every day in the morning and at night and put them on every doorpost? Uh, and obviously, the the you know the comparison, the analogy is is, is is very clear. That is, the Almighty is kind of giving us a world very complex, uh, and there's lots of distractions and lots of different ways for us to mess up. And then He tells us, you know what? I want you to take the instructions and then repeat them in the morning and repeat them at night. And that's the Shema. The Shema is these instructions for life. And when you read them, and you're like, there's so much being discussed here. This the, you know such a variety. It's not like one coherent, focused. Discussion uh, or declaration. It's kind of almost everything. Uh, and the reason is because this is like a little microcosm of what Jewish life is, is really all about. And we put it in our tefillin, and we put it in our mezuzahs, and the tefillin we wrap in the, our, 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 our hands every day with mezuzahs on every doorpost. And it's there for a reason. It's not just there as it's just some isolated mitzvah. It's there because it's supposed to remind us of something every time we walk through a door, which is hundreds of times a day. So, so that's, that's basically what the Shema is going to be. Uh, now, it's, it, I think it's a little more than that. It's kind of like this, um, like the Declaration of Judaism. Uh, you know, it's what Jews traditionally have always said before they die. Um, there was a, uh, an episode that kind of shook up the nation in Israel uh, a little less than 10 years ago, nine years ago. In the summer of 2005, and 2006, there was a war. Uh, this was the second, it's called the Second Lebanon War. It was only a 34-day war. Uh, and it started when the Hezbollah, <coughs> which is the organization that controls southern Lebanon, uh, whose stated mission is to destroy Israel, shockingly. And Syria. Uh, yeah, well... Okay. Yeah. So um, they uh, they crossed over to the border and they kidnapped a bunch of soldiers. 
well, in reality, they killed them, but they claim they kidnapped them. And then they start shooting rockets, these Katyusha rockets, and a million citizens from the north of Israel had to evacuate, and there was an incredible amount of damage. Uh, and obviously, there was a ground force invasion into Lebanon. Uh, Israel was in Lebanon. It was controlling Lebanon, or at least the southern parts, south of the river, um, the Latani River, is that what it's called? I think so. Um, and they were there, and they left in, in the year 2000, voluntarily. And as, be, as has been maybe a pattern, when Israel is controlling uh, uh, a locale that has um, the likelihood of extremism emerging, and then they leave, very often rockets follow. It's happened in Gaza in 2005, and obviously in Lebanon in, in the year 2000. Uh, that was Barack. I was on the Barack. I wasn't Sharon yet. That was in 1982. With the, the massacre? Well, alleged massacre. Yeah, alleged massacre. Well, it, it was more like... Uh, <laughs> he allowed it to happen or something. Well, yeah. Sharon was, I think, the defense minister or the chief of staff in 1982, the first Lebanon war, and there are some allegations of maybe war crimes or war crime-like activities in Lebanon. Unsubstantiated, of course. Uh, either way, uh, there was a force uh, that was the Israeli force was going into uh, into Lebanon, uh, and there was this uh, soldier who was a, was a commander, and it was Roe Klein, uh, and he was leading a group of soldiers, uh, and they were in this very pivotal battle. Um, the place was called uh, I don't remember what it's called. It had some like J's and H's next to each other. Um, and they were next to a wall, him and his soldiers walking next to the wall, and from the other side of the wall, a live grenade comes. And immediately, the commander, Roi, he jumps in the grenade and screams at the top of his lungs, and boom, it explodes and it kills him and he saves all his guys. Like that story took over the, you know, the nation. And it was also like in a time of war, of course, there's unity. And we've spoken many times that the Jewish people thrive on this unity. And then there's this act of, of heroism combined with this act of martyrdom uh, and this declaration of Judaism. And it was just, you know, they shook up the nation. Uh, and this is typical. You know, we have so many stories of, of Jews giving up their lives, uh, either voluntary or involuntarily or involuntarily. Um, but this has always been what's been on their lips when they die, because this is what we're all about. And just as a postscript to that story, um, I have a brother, one of my, I have a bunch of siblings live in Israel, but I have one brother who's um, he's very uh, energetic about trying to you know, inf inspire other people. Uh, and after this episode, the entire nation was like shooken up. Uh, and uh, by the way, this um, individual, this Roy Klein, he won the, posthumously obviously, he won the Medal of Valor, which is the highest award that the Israeli military um, uh, endows. So uh, my brother was very inspired and wanted to inspire others uh, from this story. So he um, commissioned me, well, to me and him. We said, we're going to paint the, uh, we're going to uh, do an act of vandalism. And uh, 
and made the biggest sign of Shema Yisrael on a, a mountain outside of Jerusalem. Now there's a mountain outside of Jerusalem called Haramanuchos, which is the, uh, the biggest um, um, graveyard in, uh, in Israel. And it's the place where almost all, all the Israelis get buried there, and all the Americans want to be buried in Israel. It's a really special thing to be buried in Israel. They go to Haramanuchos. And um, we decided we're going to go there. We took buckets and buckets of paint. And we're going to say we're going to... And it's, it, it, remember, the surrounding area of Jerusalem is all mountains, right, mountainous. So Har Menuchos, Har means a mountain, right? So there's this mountain, and then there's mountains surrounding it everywhere. But when, as you're going into Jerusalem, like you're on top of mountains, and then you go down, and you go up and down, and, and you, see, you see everything. Um, so we went like at 3 in the morning with like paintbrushes and ladders and lots of paint and we're driving around trying to find a good spot we found this spot this perfect spot there was like a, this empty area of just cement on the side because it's a tiered mountain so if you have let's say a bunch of grave sites and then a, and then a little tier and then it goes up again you know so and it's this enormous just empty cement because you know, the most of the mountain is covered with, with stone like nice nicely done there's this empty there and then, uh, yeah, that's right. And then there's this, uh, this, um, this like awning, this had a bunch of graves on the bottom, and bizarrely, there's this metal like awning on top of it. So like an eight foot awning. So I cl- climbed on top of the awning, and we built this enormous like just you know just the eight letters of Shema Yisrael. We painted it on the wall. Uh, enormous. You could see it from miles and miles and miles away. And every day there's, there's tens and twenties, I mean, 20,000 motorists that come into Jerusalem. And they all come in the same way. And it's just right there. It's just enormous. Um, you know, that's what we did. Um, I thought it was germane. I thought you were going to say we got caught. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't get caught. No, like, it, imagine. Imagine we, uh, so we, we're on top of this, this little awning. And we start the letters on the bottom. And then we have a six-foot maybe like a seven-foot ladder on top of the awning, and me at six-foot-one, fully outstretched to like make the top of the letters. This, these were like, they must have been like 11 foot, 11 foot tall each letter. Oh, wow. Um, enormous. And how long did it stand? <laughs> so, <laughs> and yeah, so it's interesting. I remember driving... By the way, I'm not endorsing such behavior. I was 19 at the time. Um, I'm not saying 19. I don't know if it was the right thing or the wrong thing. I don't know. Um, either way, we uh, it it. Um, I remember every time you every time you drive up to Jerusalem, you just saw it. It was right there. It was like enormous, and you can see it from miles away, literally miles away. Uh, now, what happened was, I eventually one time I left Jerusalem to look back to look at my uh, art, masterpiece. my masterpiece, and someone. Someone was obviously disturbed by it because they painted over. It was white paint, so they painted over it. It's not like they covered it or anything like that, or they had, they wanted it for any reason. They just wanted to get rid of it. Probably some some guy was just frustrated having to be reminded of this every day, and uh, you know they just painted it all over in white paint. They didn't like do anything towards it, which must have been a, an incredible job because it took us hours and hours and hours to do it. Um, either way, I don't know if we did the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, don't judge me. <laughs> um, 
I don't know if, uh, but I assume a lot of people saw it and maybe were inspired. I think that's probably good, you know, I would, I would guess. So you never stayed out in the outskirts kind of wondering what people are going to do if they're going to stop and read or, you know. Well, it's on a highway. There's a highway going up to Jerusalem. So. Well, I'm saying it's right there. You cannot miss it. No, but you never watched to see if people were In their cars. No, it was, it was. Imagine you're driving on a highway and there's mountains in front of you and there's just enormous sign, enormous letters in the mountains. Do you have a picture of this? I have a picture. I tried to find it this morning. I knew you guys wanted to see this. <laughs> yes. I, I couldn't find it. I doodled it. I couldn't find it as well. Um, I'm sure there's got to be hundreds of pictures of it, even randomly, because if you take a picture of the car in front of you, you know, you'll find it. Uh, but I, I couldn't find it. I know I have a picture somewhere, but if I find it, I'll bring it to you guys next week or something. Uh, either way, uh, to me, like, this is a good story, um, because it's almost, it's almost typical about what happened. Um, of course, you know, I watched some YouTube videos about his, you know, his soldiers that were there and talking about this, this episode. And it's somewhat, it's unremarkable because it's, it's happened probably millions of times um, over the course of Jewish history. Um, but that is what the Shema is about. Um, another great story here, guys, before we get uh, into the actual discussion of the Shema, uh, in the war. In World War II. I was going to ask that question about a rabbi that. Right, famous rabbi. So, so this is maybe it's a famous story. Um, there was a, there, it was common, it was common that if you wanted to save your skin and save your kids, you would hand them off to maybe Christian neighbors or the monastery or something like that to watch over them. Uh, and then after the war was over in 1945, there was a rabbi from Cincinnati, Rabbi Silver, who made it his mission to go around Europe and try to collect all those Jewish kids. You know, but some kids went in, they're two years old, three years old, four years old. You know, how do you know who's Jewish? So he would walk up to these places and say, you have any Jewish kids? He says, I don't know, either would say no, and you have no way to prove it. I would say yes, but I don't know, they're all commingled, we have no records, they're all orphans, we don't know who's who. So he would go in there at, at, at bedtime. And he would just walk between the kids and start saying Shema Yisrael. And then all some kids would like just wake up and like start covering their eyes right away, and it was almost like an instinct, uh, because we know it's been the tradition from time immemorial that kids before they go to sleep we say Shema. It's actually part of the requirement of Shema is to say it as you're about to go to sleep, and uh, and they would just he would just save kids like that from uh, from losing out on, on a Jewish life. Um, One of the congregates that he Yeah, I think it was quite common. Like, it's obviously uh, a, a really torturous decision that a parent wants to make, but um, obviously it's very understandable someone would do that. And then, what do you do? What do you do afterwards? You know, it's very likely the parents are gone, or they're not going to find their kids. Or Madeline Albright was that? Was she? Was Madeline that right? Albright was found out she was Jewish. Uh, I don't remember the story, but she was raised Catholic, and she didn't find out she was Jewish until she was way into adulthood. And you had this guy from England who just died at 106, who saved 600 and yes. some kids Pretty in remarkable. Czechoslovakia. And he's only spent three weeks in, in Czechoslovakia. It's also like interesting, uh, you know, how 
you know, opportunities in, in a weird way. This is going to be a weird example, but like the amount of good that was possible to be done during the times of crises is, is, is amazing. You save one person. You save one person, you save the entire world. That's the mission says. That whoever saves one Jewish soul is able to save the entire world. So that, the, just the magnitude, the enormity of, of what your actions do when you save one person. You know, and it was relatively easy to save tens of people. You know, my, I told you to start with my grandfather. My grandfather, he secured visas for hundreds and hundreds of yeshiva students during the war. And yeah, was it hard? I'm sure it was hard, but it's, it's not easy right now to save hundreds of people. So ironically, in a time where there's such chaos and crisis and tragedy, that's a time where there's more opportunity in a weird way. Who was this Hungarian guy who saved him? He finally got, uh, he was killed in Israel, but he saved a few hundred people of his family from Eichmann who let him go to Switzerland. Kastner? We talking yeah, about? Kastner. Yeah, Kastner. Yeah. Controversial. controversial. Very controversial. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to give um, my, um, my analogy of what the Shema is like. Um, we are all familiar with this experience of settling down into an airplane and then hearing the announcements. <laughs> and if you fly Air Canada, you got to hear them in English and French. And if you fly Air Canada to Israel, you hear them in English and French and Arabic and Hebrew and you're going nuts. <laughs> And it's all the same, and you've heard it a thousand times. Do not tamper with, disable, or destroy the smoke detectors. It's a smoke-free environment. Put the mask on yourself before you put it on their kids. And then I sat in the, and I sat at the edge of the aisle, and, and they wanted to come they came to me and say, are you able-bodied? Are you able to like throw the window out of the airplane if you need to? Sure. As long as no one sits next to me, I'm fine. Like I'll do whatever if I get to see like four more inches of legroom. Uh, and it's kind of like, and, and all of us, I'm sure, are frustrated with hearing that. Um, but I think if we were policymakers, we agree that it has to be said because, you know, if the cabin, the unlikely event of the cabin, losing air pressure or landing on water or whatever, that's a very important uh, contingency they have to prepare for. It's not likely to happen, but, you know, if it happens, everyone has to know what to do because you don't want some, some person, you know, just putting on their kids and fumbling and not having the oxygen and everyone dying, right? Okay. Imagine you knew for sure that the plane was going down. How much more important would it be to make sure everyone's ready to know what they need to do? Imagine if you knew for sure the plane's going to shot down, if there's turbulence, you're going to have to land on water. How important is it then to make sure that everyone knows and listens and concentrates about what the instructions are? That's the Shema. The Shema is preparing us for life. Life is the stakes cannot be higher. It's, it, the stakes are much higher than landing on water. Right? It's, it's everything. And the Shema is us going through the don't tamper with, stable, destroy, put your mask on first. That's what it's doing, preparing us for life. That's what it's about. And of course, yes, it's a, it's a condensed version of everything, but it, it's so important to remember. You've got to say it again and again and again because every day the plane's going down. Is this your analogy of yes. someone... That's mine. Do you like it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if every day we're living, every day we're living, and the decisions that we're going to make and a life course we're going to take, that's enormous. And every day we have to remember, like, these are the rules. Don't forget them. Like, know what you got to do. That's the Shema. So we said that the Shema is comprised of, of three paragraphs. Uh, the first and second are from the books of the Deuteronomy, as it says in the 
handouts that we gave, handy handouts. And the last of them is the book of Numbers. Uh, now, it's a mitzvah to read these verses. It's one of the only times we have a mitzvah to read something. I guess you could say we to read the Torah as well. Um, but it's a mitzvah to read this twice a day. So it's one of the easiest mitzvahs you can do. It's only 248 words. And it's not, I'm saying it's, it's relatively, yeah, that's not how many words is that. You know, that's, that's like the, that's like the um, Gettysburg Address or something, right? It's not so, it's not so many words. It's not so big. Um, by the way, I said to anyone, did anyone have any symbolism behind the 248? Did that? Positive commandments, exactly. 248 positive commandments, like the limbs of the body. And this is like maybe maybe there's some connection here that the, that this is something, there's some totality of, of what it's trying to convey. Okay. Uh, it's, but it's not so hard, like 248 words. It's, you know, the words, it's in Hebrew, of course. Um, but Can you imagine them sitting down and saying, let's subtract that word because it's going to be 249? <laughs> well, actually, if you notice, if you notice uh, on top here that there's three words here, God trustworthy king, El Melech Ne'eman, uh, those words are added when someone is praying without a minion on their own. And when someone is praying uh, with a minion, they add three words at the end. And the reason behind that is because it really is 245. I tricked you guys. It's really 245 words. By the way, in English it's more. But in Hebrew, it's 245 words. So if you're praying as an individual, you add three at the beginning. If you're praying as part of a community, as part of a communal prayer effort, you add the three at the end to make the 248. Okay, so there you go. You learned something. <laughs> so, so we said these three paragraphs. Uh, I will go through them, of course, in, in great detail. Uh, also, the Talmud points out that the uh, very first paragraph, just the first paragraph, it has within it, in, incorporated within it, it, the Ten Commandments. And obviously we know the Ten Commandments are a microcosm of Judaism. Well, so is the Shema. Uh, therefore, it's no shocker that the Talmud says that you can find the Ten Commandments uh, within the very first paragraph. Uh, that's the Shema and the Vahavta. Uh, additionally, this is what I, 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 I tried to find it. Uh, I, I found six out of seven, so that's pretty good, I guess. Um, but we know that there's seven mitzvahs, or maybe we don't know, but the seven mitzvahs that we're told in, uh, in, in the Torah that are equal to the rest of the mitzvahs combined. As if that these seven mitzvahs are representative of what the totality of the entire Torah is. Uh, and I found, shockingly, at least six. I found myself, and no one mentions this, but I found at least six out of seven uh, are included in, this, uh, uh, in, in, in these three paragraphs, which is pretty interesting. Um, I'm just trying to figure out a way to jigger the uh, fourth, the seventh one in, but I'm sure I can figure it out. Maybe, yeah, I think I, yeah, oh yeah, I just got, came up with one. Thank you. Okay, all seven of them. I could think of a way to get all seven of them as being represented in some way. Um, so let's start with the first, uh, the first par- the first sentence. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Hashem Echad. Let's translate it. Hear, O Israel. Hashem is our God, Hashem the one and only. Um, now, 
what, what, what do we see here? So we see, obviously, the de declaration at the beginning, which is no shock. Like, here is a list. This like, take, you know, take a stand at attention. But there's something important we're about to say. Uh, then it says that Hashem is our God. So it's using two names for our for God. Hashem and our God, which is very interesting. We see this a lot. Um, there has been um, some uh, revisionist uh, history as to the meaning behind the multiple names we find for God in the Torah. Uh, there are those that use this. This is the basically the, the primary sources or, or rationale for what has become known as higher Bible criticism, which is the um, 19th century notion that the, that the Torah is indeed uh, not divine, and in fact it's human author, but multiple authorships. The crux of that argument is based on the fact that there's multiple names for God used by the Torah. That's the core of the argument. Um, now, if you ask any uh, fourth grader in Israel, they'll tell you that these names represent different things. So, for example, the, the name that here is translated as Hashem in, in, the, in Hebrew, it's actually four letters that we don't even pronounce them. And the reason we don't pronounce them is because we're banned very severely against pronouncing them. The only time someone's allowed to pronounce them is the Kohen Gadol in the temple on Yom Kippur, which is something that we obviously are not privy to. Uh, but uh, that word, if you were able to deconstruct that word, it says in, that, in those four letters, it says was, is, and will be. The word for was is haya. The word for uh, is is hoveh. And the word for will be is yehiyeh. All that is meshed together to make the ineffable name of God. So essentially describing God's essence as being existing outside of time and space. And God's essence is something that we have a very hard time thinking about. So the Torah says, don't think about it. Don't even mention the name. Like, and if, you know, that's just, that's illuminating because, okay, that's what we're, being ta we're talking about. Additionally, that's the name that's always associated with kindness, with mercy. So whenever you see the name of God saying that, it's referring to the quality of God in his essence and uh, associated with mercy. And then you see the name Elohim, Right? And Elohim talks about power. The word Elohim does not mean God. The word Elohim means power. And the proof is, is that God tells Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and you will be to him an Elohim. Now, no one has ever claimed that Moses is any sort of deity. Right? If you know how to t translate Hebrew, you know that Elohim means power. Another example. Okay. So much that um, from her I think it says about the qualities of God. I'll, 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 I'll address that in a second. I thought it was plural. Now, um, now additionally, uh, the Jewish court is described as Elohim. So if two people have a dispute, we're talking about the laws of, uh, you know, just they're arguing about some monetary, right? They, they go, Ada Elohim, you have a Varsh name. They should go to Elohim. Does that mean you go to God and have God adjudicate? No, it means the court. Right? It's just that the court is a power, and thus the power is described as Elohim the Torah. When it says the word Elo Elohim with regards to 
God, if you notice, I said Elohim with regards to other powers, not, uh, not, uh, not, uh, not, not the Almighty, not, not, not right. But uh, you know, that's you can say that. But when you're referring to God, you say Elohim because you don't want to. You know, we don't say God's name in vain. Uh, when it says Elohim with regards to God, it's referring to God's powers, multiple power powers. Right, the fact that He heals and He's compassionate. And God has all the powers. The, the, the attributes of God. Well, no, that the powers okay. of God. That's what it's referring to, and it's also referring to the attribute of justice. Like we said, this is a term even used for justice. And if you just read the times where it says Vayomer versus Vayedaber, it says God speaks. If you know Hebrew, there's two words for God speaking. There's one Vayomer, one Vayedaber, right? And even sometimes in the same verse, it says uh, when God tells Moses to prepare the Jewish people for going to, uh, to for, for the Mount Sinai experience, right? I don't know exactly the words. Basically, he says, go speak to the sons of Israel, and then go speak to the girls of Israel. And he uses different words of speaking, one by Yomer, one by Yadabra. And the answer is because with the men, you could be a little tougher. You got to be a little nicer with the women, right? That's what it says. Therefore, whenever it says, Vayomer, it means a little bit, a little bit more mercifully, and Vayedaber means a little stringently. And that's rules that everyone knows. Now, if you were a German academic, right, who studied Hebrew when you were 20 years old and has absolutely no background in traditional Jewish knowledge and has no sensitivity to the subtleties of what's going on here, you see two names for God. What, what's going on here? There's got to be two people we're talking, two entities we're talking about. And it was you know, mixed together, which is ironic because part of the theory is that there's a redactor, someone who put it all together. So there's four authors and then there's someone who also put it together. So ironically, on one hand, we're being told that it's a haphazard mix of, of different books, and then we have the redactor who kind of organizes it really nicely and puts sometimes Hashem looking like this verse. It says, Hashem is our God. It uses both of them. So is it, is it, a, is it a sloppy mess, or is it, is it a coherent book? Well, even uh, humans have more than one name for the same person. They have nicknames and this and that. Yeah, that, that itself is, is the weakest of all proofs. Uh, of course. Now, additionally, they uh, they uh, they invented this uh, that the Deuteronomy was written by someone else. Why would Deuteronomy be written by someone else? What would the rationale to say that Deuteronomy has its own author? Because Moses died uh, before. Well, yes, okay, but that's just that the la- that's thing. just the last eight verses. Well, but that's just a Even the Torah says the last eight verses were either written by Joshua or Moses wrote them prophetically, okay. Uh, okay. with tears. It actually says. Well, you but, gave an explanation for that, but I'm saying that's one... Yeah, but, but, but what's the real reason? You know what the real motivation behind saying that Deuteronomy had, its, uh, had, a, had another author? Because Deuteronomy is full of prophecies, and prophecies that all came true. So if the prophecies came true, says a secular academic, it must be it was written by a man after it actually happened. So it must be that it's dated towards after these events happened. So, for example, it describes once in all of history phenomenons like Israel being kicked out of the land of Israel, Jewish people getting kicked out of the land of Israel, and then coming back, that's only happened once. And in fact, it only happened, actually, precisely twice, but only to one nation, and it's foretold in Deuteronomy. So therefore, if you're working in, 19, in 1887 or whatever, uh, and you're trying to piece it all together, and you presuppose that God is not the author, 
Therefore, you'll say, oh, it must be it's a human author because these predictions all came true. And therefore, this Deuteronomy that has all these predictions, it must be dated to after these predictions happened. That's why we have a D, the D author. Now, if you just guys do all the math here, there's one major flaw with that argument. Or well, there's a few major flaws. But one major flaw in, in, in it that the fact that uh, if Deuteronomy was written after all of Israel was scattered, okay, then you have to act, then, then the complete Torah has to only be finished after Israel's all scattered. So someone has to go and deliver it to North Africa and travel to Morocco and say, oh, this is the Torah. And someone has to go to Europe and someone has to go to Babylon and someone has to go to Persia and someone has to go everywhere. Like that, that part of the equation doesn't really work out. That seems very, very illogical. But if you're already assuming that it's not, it's not written, at, it's not what it claims to be, if that's your position to start with, and you just suppose that prophecy is not possible, okay, well, then you have to come up with uh, inventions like making another author. Oh, there's now a D author. Okay, either way, uh, rant completed. Uh, two names of God. Uh, now, when we, when we, when we read this, Right? We have to think about this fact that, that we, when you say Hashem, when you say the name of God, that's Hashem, you think about was, is, and will be. God is complete. God has the, the, the essence of God almost, not existing within time, not being bound by the same rules that we are. And Elokeinu, all powerful, you know, has all the powers. Uh, then it says Hashem is one. So um, obviously, the idea of oneness of Hashem, we don't believe in, you know, God doesn't have any parts or particles or. Uh, God, there's only one power. All the power is consolidated in one entity. And all powers that exist are only relative powers. All powers aside from God are only relative powers. They're only powers that God allows to exist. And you know what? That's, that's, what, that's the rule number one of, of Jewish theology. And you know what? It's the first verse of the Shema, coincidentally. Okay. The first rule is that... Exactly. That's right. So essentially, we're declaring the declaration of faith. That's the first of the Ten Commandments, the first mitzvah, the first mitzvah, the most important mitzvah of all, right? to believe that God has all the power and God is be the be all end all. <coughs> now, um, just one other thought here: uh, we we say God is one. So Rashi is a very interesting way of, of presenting this. He says, uh, "We say um, Shema Israel, here Israel, talking to Israel, right? Hashem is our God." Um, and so we're saying we're talking about Hashem is our God and Hashem is one now Rashi talks about what's going to be like like, like this transition that's going to happen the Jewish people right now at the time um, um, of, of this declaration right? It, you know, the Jewish people are the only ones they're touting the existence of what we can call the Jewish God or the Jewish definition of God or monotheism weak definition. We're the only ones. However, the end game, what's going to be at the end, Hashem is one. Hashem really is one, but Hashem will be universally accepted as one. So it's also talking about the idea of Tikkun Olam, the idea where the Jewish role is to try to make that one possible by teaching the entire world about God. And as we know today, we spoke about this in the past, that we are very far along the way where the vast majority of, uh, of people, at least in Western civilization, uh, either, you know, probably most of them still accept the idea of the Jewish God, basically, in broad strokes, 
And uh, even those that don't, they agree that if God does exist, well, it exists in the way that, uh, that we talk about, not in the way that Greeks or the Romans or uh, you know, the, people, the pagans of yesteryear talked about. So there has been a dramatic, we're getting a lot closer to the idea of, of Hashem and Hashem being one, accepted by all. Now, what are you supposed to be thinking about? Like, how are we going to take the Shema and really utilize it to make an impact on our lives? So, I think that like, in ev- like every other area of, of work that we could do to try and make ourselves better people, better Jews, uh, there's always the possibility of us doing something mindfully or mindlessly. And of course the Shema, I, I could probably say the whole Shema, hmm. 18 seconds. I could just, you know, just belt it out, probably. Um, the likelihood of me actually getting anything out of that is, is nil. Now, ideally, the Shema ought to be a transformational experience. And we say, like, it's so, so important, so central, like, this is it, this is Judaism here, in three paragraphs. How do we change it from being lip service, just saying something mindlessly, your mind on something else, and really having it change who you are, really have it affect you, really have it, you know, penetrate your heart and soul? Well, when things become like they're part of your regular thing, you know, like brushing your teeth or whatever, you know, you don't even think about that stuff. You, know, you just do it. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard for it to become not important. You know, it's just it becomes rote. rote after you do it so many times. Yeah, so many times it's rote. It's it's just, uh, or, or when we have a discussion like this, and then the, you know we think about it, and we constantly uh, get inspired to think about it a little more. So even if you do it by road ninety eight percent of the time, those that you know that one once one time out of fifty, it can really change your life. So once a week or once a month or something like that, you really think about it and you really do it slowly and thoughtfully, and then then it could be very impactful. Um, but in, in, in Jewish, uh, I guess, lingo, this verse is described, this verse and the ensuing verses as well, uh, as crowning God. Or, that's from God's side, from our perspective, is accepting upon ourselves the yoke of God. And what, it's, what, you know, what that's describing is where you actually translate the words or you, you, you meditate, you think about the words as applying to you. And you think about the fact that you are accepting God as being in charge of you and that the, uh, the effect or the, uh, uh, it's, it's demonstrated, you know, that you are submitting yourself to God and you, you're, you're, you're submitting your, your thoughts, your speech, your actions, your eyeballs, your ears, right? yourself. Right? Every, every, every part, all those limbs that we talked about, submitting yourself to God. And we know that you're supposed to cover your eyes when you say the Shema, and that's a tool to help you stop and concentrate. If you look in the Torah scroll, 
you will see that there are two letters of the first six words of the Shema that are enlarged. And it's kind of, it's, it happens frequently that, uh, not frequently, but often in the Torah that some letters are big, some letters are small. There's a few small letters, a few big letters. Um, there's a few un- upside down letters in, in every Torah scroll. There's one letter that has a, a little hole through it, like a vav with missing, like imagine a vav, but it has like a little, um, little space, but like a, like a vertical space. Um, these ones are big. An, an ayin at the end of Shema and a, uh, and a dalet at the end of, of Echad. And that word spells out aid, which means witness. And that they remind us of the fact that we're right now standing as a witness. And we are trying to, you know, as a witness, their job is to say the truth and the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and think about what you're saying. And if you're actually testifying to something, well, maybe you should stop and think about what, what, about what you're about to say. And of course, you know, we know that this is what life's really all about. We mentioned the, the idea of Tikkun Olam. It's on a personal, communal, uh, national, and, and global realm. That is what we're talking about in the Shema. We're accepting the idea of God. So when you're doing this, you're essentially doing an act of Tikkun Olam to yourself. You are making God more of a, of a reality on your essence, on your being. Now, is this, uh, is this easier now? What do you guys think? Is this easy? Yeah. It is, right? So we find in uh, the Rambam, our favorite. Oh, wait, before I have a couple Go of ahead. things on this one. Number one, why was it decided that everything should be on the, this would be from God, that this, the heart was the main oh, organ okay. rather than the brain? Because mm-hmm. the heart rules the brain. And the, the heart is where action lies. Uh, and the heart's going to be the motivation for the for, for the for the um, for that. So if you look at the first verse, that you know we close our eyes. Uh, the eyes, as we'll see in the last verse, are linked to the heart, right? Um, do not do not and not explore um, after your heart and after your eyes. We cover our eyes, and the eyes are like the windows into the heart. Um, that sounds like a really weird, really bad pickup line. I know, but um, and the other thing is the, the second line. You know, uh, no, but when we cover our eyes in the first verse, we're essentially doing an act of of mind. Oh, I guess. And then the next verse, everybody talks about emotions, like loving God. So, like, it's we're really doing both. We're starting off with obviously the most important ideal to incorporate into your intelligence. And then we really talk about, okay, how do we have that influence the heart, which is very distant from the intelligent, and it influence your life and your behavior in a real way. But yes, we're not ignoring the brain. It just We're starting off the brain, in fact. But then we right away move into how is this going to practically affect who we are. The second is why we have this undertone. Yeah. We'll get that, we'll that, that in a second. Now, what does it mean to submit yourself to God? What does it mean if someone submit? They totally submitted entirely. Do his will. Huh? Do his will. Mm, okay. So your actions are submitted to God. What does it mean to be totally submitted to God? Entirely. 
to keep his commandments. Entirely submitted. So yes, you have to do the commandments. You have to... to do it right. with joy, though. Okay. It's almost like I cease to exist and I just totally become one with... Well, I wouldn't say one with God. I'd say, yeah. but your role is, 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 you know, is very, it's very limited. You know, you are nothing but this. So yes, your actions, of course, that, you know, that threat towards that goal. But then you're submitted. You're nothing because this is, this is, this is your sole purpose. Now, what does that mean? If someone is truly submitted to God, what does that mean? We'll see more about this a little later on. If every part of them is just totally submitted to God, what do they need to do? They have to dedicate their lives towards this, right? That's, that's what they are. Well, what if there comes a conflict between this ideal and their life? What happens then? That's called a hiccup. Huh? That's called a hiccup. <laughs> well, is it it's a hiccup or is it, uh, is it a, a test of are, 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 is this true or not? Someone said it's easy. It's six words. No big deal. But is it really easy? No. Because what, what does it mean? It, it means to dedicate everything to God. Everything. What does everything mean? Everything. Your life included. Maimonides writes, I was about to say this, um, Maimonides writes in Guide to the Perplexed, 351, that someone should spend Many years trying to work on the first six words of the Shema. Many six words. My goodness, you know, six words. Yeah, it's six words. But what actually we're implying with these words is in our entire life. It's a total submission of ourselves to God. To say the words, no problem. We could say every kid can memorize them. But to actually live by these words, right, to have this declaration of that, the mighty, you know, the. God is, you know, God is our king and God is one, to actually flesh that out to what that actually means. What does that really imply? That implies that I have to do everything for that because that's the only ideal. So if they come and put a gun to my head and they say, do you believe in this ideal or not? Right, right now, you're, well, do, do, you, do, they, do, do you or do you not? Well, this is the ultimate test. Right? Someone who follows my monies and spends years incorporating this into their lives, well, then it's, of course, it's simple. It's simple. Of course, like this is the greatest opportunity to actually dedicate your life towards this. And surprisingly, we'll find a little source to this later. This is like even a joyous occasion for some. It's as if that their life's goal that they spent every day doing is now being actualized. Which sounds crazy, I'm sure, to some of you. It, it does, but you read the words. You tell me how it could be interpreted, interpreted any other way. Here's, here's a Let's take the Murado Jews. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, if they believe in Judaism, but just to stay alive, uh, you know, say they, they uh, converted to Christianity, but they still believed in Judaism in their heart. They just did this thing just to stay alive. What is wrong with that? What's wrong with it? Well, I'm, I'm not, not, we're not casting judgment here on anyone. No, no. But it's clearly... Well, how about we, we hold off that hold on to that thought until we there's another source I want, I want you to see about this particular issue. Um, I um, found over here that uh, one of the thoughts we're supposed to be thinking when we say these things, and you guys might find find this a little extreme, is that you have to imagine in yourself in your mind how they're walking you to the stake. 
Right? They're walking you to the Ot da Fe, which is a lot, what a lot of Moranos tried to avoid, but many Jews embraced almost. And you're saying the Shema, and you're in the comfort of your own home or your own synagogue, and you know, you're, you're not worried about anything, but in your mind, you're thinking that this is, I'm, I'm submitting everything towards this, and even in your mind, you're like, even if it means this, of course, you know. That's part of the process. Obviously, this is not just six easy words that we just learn and study and read and move on. It's an entire life's mission. Um, Jacob and Joseph, uh, they had a reunion after 22 years of being separated. And we know that Jacob was miserable when Joseph disappeared, uh, and he could be comforted. Finally, he's told Joseph's alive. He's he's the boss in Egypt. He goes down to meet them. And if you read the verses um, in Genesis that talk about what happened when they met in Parshas Vayigash, seventh last section, uh, it says that uh, Joseph cried on his shoulder, but doesn't say that Jacob cried. Or did, there seems to be like a disconnect between the two. And Rashi quotes the midrash as saying that what was Jacob doing at that time? He was saying the Shema. Um, so Joseph is crying all emotional, Jacob's saying the Shema. The question is, well, okay, if Jacob's saying the Shema, well, why is Joseph not saying the Shema? If it's the time to say the Shema, let them both say the Shema. And if it's not, then why is Jacob saying the Shema? They're in very different places. No, but they met. Emotionally, they're in very different places. One is a father and one is a son. They cannot be the same. They don't have the same Okay, but why why is he saying the Shema? One thought his son was dead, and the other one knew or expected his father to be alive. Maybe that's a totally different feeling, welcoming back somebody. Yeah, but why is he saying the Shema? You think it's about appreciation? So I'm saying about appreciation. Maybe I don't know. Maybe what? 20 years he's been away. Maybe, you know, he wasn't exactly... Saying the Shema. Oh, uh, you're saying that he was trying to remind him of the Shema and Joseph forgot the Shema? That's hard to say that Joseph forgot the Shema. Maybe Jacob thought he was dying at that point. Oh, maybe. Maybe Jacob was so overwhelmed, he's like, I'm, this is it for me. Maybe he was oh, that's just interesting. trying to think about that. forgive his father and that was the prayer that. Well, J- well, Joseph, the son, was not saying the Shema. Jacob was saying the Shema, father. That's a very interesting thing. I didn't maybe think about he was that. Maybe. thankful and he was like praying to God. Yeah, but it's not really the prayer of thanks. Know, There's a lot of other prayers of thanks. I don't know. Well, how do so, you think he got there except by God? I agree. But the question is why is this the opportune time to say the Shema? Oh, what? So um, my grandfather said an answer, a very interesting answer. There is, well, he's, he's saying there is a God. Yeah, he okay. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that that's probably the simplest. I understand. Yeah. I think what you're saying is very interesting. Yeah, when, was raised said, here. when the brothers came back and greeted him with the coat all covered in blood, didn't he say, I will go to my grave mourning? My That's right. I will never tell her. So Maybe. Maybe. That's true. Um, so, my grandpa said like this. Listen to this, guys. He said that the there's a unique status of the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? What do we say? We say... Uh, when in in the in the prayers, right, in the beginning of the beginning of the uh, of the Amidah prayers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Now we don't say God of Moses, we don't say God of Joseph, we don't say God of David. Like, 
only these three. There's a certain unique role, reason why these three were the only ones. Didn't we add all those women? They added the women as well, which I, to me, uh, to me, okay, but to me, no, we look at Abraham and Sarah as one entity. I think it's not a stretch to say that it's already, it, was, it wasn't like it was omitted. Um, either way, yeah, it's, uh, so, why only the patriarchs uh, was the name of God associated with them? The God of Abraham. God of Isaac, God of Jacob, and not God of Moses or God of... We don't, never say God of Moses. In fact, there's this great dialogue. That Moses is praying, say, say the God of Moses, but God says, no, you, you're, not, you're not exactly there. Uh, and the Talmud describes it as the, uh, the forefathers are the chariot of God. The way it was explained from my grandfather is as if you have a dignitary, king or president or whatever, that he always has his motorcade ready to go. At all times they know, there's always, it's always possible to have a motorcade. Kind of like Air Force One. Exactly. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were always ready for, or they're always at a constant state of being total, totally submitted to God. It's as if they always had this yoke, like we said, this yoke of God on their shoulders, always. And they never lost that for a second. Now, Jacob is about to meet his son. Obviously, we saw he was about to, he was, he was so depressed he was going to die. It was his favorite, like we all mentioned. Jacob was steered that during this emotional experience that he was going to have with the son, he was going to for a second lose the, 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 the total submission, the total focus on, on God. So therefore, at the exact moment where he meets his son, and he, he says to the Shema, right, to not have the momentous experience make him for one second lose, uh, uh, you know, the, the, this total readiness of, of being ready to accept God and ready, to, ready for prophecy right away. You know, not, you, know, not, not, you know, not losing that state of being. No silly question. That's right. So how did Jacob, is that, is that something that was given to Adam and then it was Well, no, 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 no. It's, 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 it's not a silly question. It's a very, very good question. Um, so, for first, the, the easiest answer is that, well, Jacob's a prophet. And we said prophets have something that we can't even imagine, and that is the ability to foresee the future. So it's very possible, or there's a possibility, perhaps, that Jacob already knew what was in the Torah because he had prophecy. Now, that's, that's, not, that, that's the simple answer. That the other answer is, which I think is probably the true answer, is that we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew the entire Torah, and they observed the entire Torah. Now, Jacob married two sisters, and the Torah says that you cannot marry two sisters, but Jacob uh, only observed the Torah in Israel. That's why uh, when they're about to get back into the land of Israel, right, uh, Rachel had to die. Why? Because he married Leah first, and therefore, who encroached on the prohibition of marriage to sister is the marriage to Rachel. Rachel had to die in the, before they got into the land of Israel because Jacob observed the entire Torah in Israel. There, obviously, they weren't, they, it, it wasn't mandatory because it was the Torah had not yet been given to the Jewish people. But they observed the entire Torah only, in, in, perfectly. And it, the Talmud says they even observed rabbinic law, everything, even things that were much later on. How they got that is one of the great, great questions of all time. Uh, but we know Abraham, Isaac, they observed the entire Torah and clearly they knew the entire Torah. 
um, a as well. What's the significance that they only observe in the land of Israel? I'm not sure. Yeah, so um, I, I think we think of the land of Israel in somewhat different terms than what the Torah thinks of the land of Israel. We think of the land of Israel as like our land. It's, you know, we think of it as a land. We're thinking about the uh, land and the physical qualities of land. The Torah looks at Israel as being uh, a spiritual land, a land that is, yes, it has a physical manifestation, but it's entirely spiritual. For example, the verse says in Leviticus that, uh, that the land has um, its immune system. There's an immune system in the land of Israel. Now, what, what land has an immune system? It seems bizarre. But Israel has an immune system. The Torah says it. It has an immune system. And what, can it, what, what does it expel? What does it battle? It battles sin. It battles evilness. If there's evil in the land of Israel, the land will expel, uh, will expel those people. It, it roots out evil. That's what it does. And who does it? Is that God doing it? No, it's the land. Land has spiritual qualities to it. Uh, now, we see Moses was so dead set on going to the land of Israel. And he, he even says, let me, be, let me be a bird so I can just float over Israel. And Thomas is like, Moses, you had a pretty good run. You, know, you got the tablets of Mount Sinai. You taught Torah to the Jewish people. You had the highest level of prophecy ever. Like, what's the big deal? I think we don't really understand what, the, what actually happens when someone like Moses goes to the land of Israel. What actually transforms uh, spiritually. Now, importantly, Abraham Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not bound by the Torah. Had they not observed the Torah, they would not have been, you know, they would not have had a punishment in any way. However, something about the land of Israel, that made it for those people that they had to observe the entire Torah. What it is exactly, it's, it's a good question. Um, Why did they not have to observe the Torah? Because the Torah wasn't yet given. They, they would, I, I, technically, they weren't even Jewish. Now, whenever I say that, people are like, whoa, Abraham wasn't. Well, he wasn't, because Jewish doesn't mean to be Abrahamic. It doesn't mean to be observing of the Torah. It means to be Jewish. Well, what does Jewish mean? Well, it means part of the Jewish nation. Well, how do you get part of the Jewish nation? When the Jewish nation, when was that formed? It formed at the Exodus, as it says in the Shema, that the nation was formed at the Exodus. Now, Abraham was promised that his kids will be the Jewish people. And, of course, it's the family that grew into the tribe, that grew into the nation, that became the land of Israel, that became the people of Israel. But whoever was part of this tribe at the Exodus automatically was part, was grandfathered into the nation. So, for example, all those multitudes of Egyptians that joined the Jewish people, well, they're Jews. Why? And they're Jews. They became Jews as, at the same time that the Jews became Jews at the Exodus. You know, Moses' wife was not a descendant of Abraham. She wasn't. Well, was she Jewish? Yeah. When did she become Jewish? When everyone else became Jewish. When Moses himself became Jewish. So technically they weren't Jewish. Isn't it the Gerim? Oh, and Gerim as well. Gerim are converts to Judaism. And they become part of the Jewish nation when they convert. But at that time, right, there was no... There was no that's why Abraham's called Abraham the Hebrew. Because he's a Hebrew, he's the founder, of course, but he himself observed the Torah in the land of Israel. Okay, so now, when we're talking about these first six words, we are essentially talking about total submission to God. Submission, even if it means giving up your life for it. How do you do that? 
how do you not face, oppo face opposition with, uh, with, with that? Because of course, like, we like ourselves a lot. None of us want to die. None of us want to give our life for anything. Not to us, you know, human life, especially if it's ours, it's very important, it's very meaningful. It's the most meaningful thing. And we're going to rebel against this. We're going to rebel about it, right? Because we have, you know, we have a, uh, we're, going, we're going to repel this idea. We don't want this idea to be true. We want to be in control of ourselves. We don't want God to be in control. This is where what Bernie said comes in. This is the mental, intellectual, cognitive negotiation we have to do. We have to say, okay, let's do the math, right? Is, you know, is, is God really there? Okay. And is he really the master of all? Yes. Is he really the only true power or ideal? Yes. Okay. Well, then, logically, it should follow that I have to be totally submitted. That kind of activity is the work that we need to do when we read the Shema. It's not just, okay, it is, and I'm totally submitted to God. No, I have to really integrate that into myself to work on it. I have to try to make that a reality. And that's not easy, but it's, it's a logical approach. And, and over years and years and years, maybe we'll actually get there. Okay, let's move on to the undertone. So we say this undertone. Uh, <coughs> although you're totally committed to God, even if you're in death and all that, but in the Jewish religion, to save your own life, you're allowed to... Do almost anything. Hmm? Do almost anything. You're allowed to do almost anything. Yeah. But not everything. Not, you're not allowed to. Not, you're not allowed to do idolatry. Ah, so here's where they converge. Yes, I got you. Baruch Shem from These other words that we say afterwards are actually not part of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. So if you look at Deuteronomy 6, 5, it starts from Hero Israel and it goes straight up to you shall love Hashem your God. We interject with this blessed name of his glorious kingdom for eternity. Now, where that comes from, very interestingly, is that we know. Jacob on his deathbed, we're told, uh, he, uh, he was worried about the status of all his kids. He didn't want to make sure that they were all okay and, you know, on the straight and narrow. Um, his kids said to him, Shema Yisrael. Yisrael is also the name of our na nation, but it's also the name of, it was, one of, the, it was the name of, of Jacob. So this, these words were first uttered by the sons of Jacob to Jacob, and then he responded with this wonderful, blessed, and he's so grateful, blessed is the name of, the glory, uh, of his glorious kingdom for eternity. And kind of as a, uh, you know, to remember that, we say that as well. Uh, additionally, the Midrash gives another source that uh, when Moshe, Moshe goes up to the heavens to get the Torah, and he hears the angel saying it, this angelic prayer. Uh, and he says, I like this, and he brings it down. Uh, but he tells us to say it in an undertone. Why? Because you start saying angels' prayer, they get, up, they get upset. They're not happy about it. They don't want you to plagiarize their prayer. We say, we say it quietly. Okay, we're just going to say the angelic prayer like, quietly. Now, who remembers what time of the year we say it really loudly? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a tradition in every Jewish synagogue, every Jewish community. This, you say it out loud. Well, there you go. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, why? Why are you saying it in an undertone throughout the year? Yom Kippur, 
Yom Kippur, you say it out loud. You know why? Because on Yom Kippur, we are elevated to the status of angels. We're close to God, as the verse says. We're pure, as the verse says. We wear white like angels. We don't need to eat or drink. Who else doesn't need to eat or drink? Angels. We can say the angelic prayer with no worries. So the kingdom of God means everywhere that Tikkun Olam has influenced. So that hopefully it's every Jew. Right? The, the Jews, Jews, a Jew's goal in life is to do Tikkun Olam. Well, what does that look like? It means to crown God as a king over yourself, first and foremost. Thus, God's kingdom is augmented by us Right? actually incorporating this idea into our lives. Right? Us, obviously, starts with us, and then it moves on to our family, community, our nation, you know, the world. That's what it means. Thank you. And if you actually look at the Rosh Hashanah prayers, it's all about God's kingdom. Because in Rosh Hashanah, we talked about the big purpose of it all, and that is, like we said, Tikkun Olam, God's kingdom, and that's the goal. That's what Rosh Hashanah is all about, because that's the founding of God's kingdom, as we mentioned. Uh, God's kingdom was founded on Rosh Hashanah because that was the birthday of man and man is the only one that can really affect God's kingdom because man is the only one who could independently testify to this uh, and therefore as an anniversary of God's kingdom on Rosh Hashanah we have the day of God's kingdom and that's what all the prayers are all about let's move on to the first verse here we only, we only got two verses in or just one verse in uh, got like yeah some uh, some more to go. Let's read the first word, verse here. So we said we started off with this in, the intellectual aspects. Hashem is our God. We cover our eyes. You know, Hashem the only one. And now we're already right away jumping into um, actually who we are and our emotions. And the first verse says, "You shall love Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your resources." Now this translation is a very very good translation, Leave but it. Lev, Lev. Well, the, the only version that we really need to know about is the Hebrew version. Yes, and, and the Hebrew version says, with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your money or resources. Now, it does say with all your hearts, multiple hearts, which is interesting. Um, and then it says your soul, and then it says your resources. Uh, but obviously it starts off with love. And like we mentioned... This is moving our obligations in this area of our lives up a notch. It's no longer about, you know, isolated to the mind, to our intelligence, to our thought, to our rational reasoning. It's now our heart. It's our emotions, what we feel, what we really are. Now, we love him with all our hearts. It says hearts. So the Talmud says, what does it mean with all your hearts? It just says with all your heart. You only got one heart. It says, the answer is, Bish, with both of your yetzers. We know man has a yetzer tov and a yetzer ra. Good inclination, bad inclination. And like we said, a heart is the motivating factor for action. 
That's what it means. It's not referring to a muscle that pumps. It's referring to what it really, you know, you know what, the, what it spiritually represents. And we have multiple influences, multiple uh, motiv- motivators uh, to our actions. We have the good and the bad motivator. And the verse is telling you, you've got to love God with both your good and your bad motivator. With your Yetzirah and your Yetzirah. You have to love God with the force that makes you want to go against God's will. Now, how, pray tell, does that work? Okay. Booyah, see, callback. Exactly. Terrific. I'm flattered. <laughs> I was hoping someone would remember that. That's great. Right. But it's, it's our goal is to achieve this alignment. You achieve the alignment where your good and your bad want the same thing. Like we said last week, if the guy says, I want to give charity so my son will live, what he's doing is aligning his, his motivators. That's what we have to do. Interesting. Excellent. Uh, with all your soul, what does that mean? Well, with all your soul, with, your, with life itself. Even if God takes away your life. Afilu no you got to love God. You can't say, oh, my life is in jeopardy now, and therefore, my, therefore God falls out of the picture. Thus we said, someone says, do idolatry, which means reject, repudiate God, or I kill you. Well, okay, now you're faced with this question. What, which one of these are you going to choose? You've got to love God with all your soul. Uh, and there's a great Talmud here I want to read to you guys. This is from the book of Brachos, and it reads as follows. I'm going to give you guys a direct translation here. And we'll pull out something very interesting from this. Well, there's a lot of interesting things as well here. So it was uh, one time that the wicked kingdom decreed that the Jewish people may not study Torah. And this is a reference to which kingdom? It referenced the Roman kingdom, Roman Empire. Ba Papas ben Yehuda, a fellow by the name of Papas ben Yehuda, came and found Rabbi Akiva, who was makil tehilos, who was congregating big conventions publicly and teaching Torah. This is, by the way, referring to the Hadrian persecution, Hadrianic persecution. Hadrian was the emperor of Rome. And in the 120s, he made very restrictive laws against Jews practicing Judaism. And Rabbi Tiva says, I'm teaching Torah anyhow. So this other guy, Papa Ben Yehuda, he comes to him and says to him, Amrle Akiva, he says to him Akiva, which by the way he calls him by his first name, which is somewhat strange. How are you not steered of the kingdom? How are you not steered of the Romans? He says to him, I will give you a mashal, I'll give you a parable. What is this comparable to? Comparable to? Is there was this fox. The fox is walking at the edge of the river. And he sees like little uh, groups of fish. And they're moving here and about. So he tells the fish, he says, what, are you, you know, what are you steered of? What are you, what are you worried about? He says, well, I'm worried about, the, I'm worried about the nets. There's fishermen and they have nets and they scoop us up. Um, so he says, why don't you come unto, come unto the dry? There's no nets in the dry land. Just come over here. And he says, and, and then the fox tells him, and then you and I will live at peace like our forefathers left. Mm-hmm. So he says to them, you are the fox. You're the most clever of all animals, right? You're not so clever. You're silly. Why? 
because here in the locale of our life, and officially exist in, um, uh, in water, if we're steered here, how much more steered will we be in a place of our death? Which is out of the water. So too, so too, now that we're studying Torah, which the Torah says that's our life, if we go and, and now we're in danger, what's going to be when we abandon our life? That's what Rabbi Tiva says to him, which, by the way, and I've mentioned this a few times, uh, that, that Rabbi Tiva compares Torah study for Jews like oxygen for fish, like life itself. And this is a source. It's in the book of Brachos on page 61b. So what happens? It was sometime later, and they captured Rabbi Tiva, and they took him into... Uh, they, you know, they put him. They put him away, and they put him in in, in a. Uh, they put him in prison, and they also took the other guy, Papa Spanuda, and put him also in prison. And then, and then, then he told Rabbi Ativa, he says to them, "Praiseworthy is you, Rabbi Ativa." Now he told some rabbi that you were at least caught for teaching Torah. He, he says to them, "Listen, I told you not to teach Torah." But now you and I are in the same boat, but you at least were you at least were caught because you were teaching Torah. So what happened with Rabbi Tiva? They took Rabbi Tiva out to execute him. And that was the time to read Kriyashma. And the method of execution that they gave him was very, very brutal. If you remember we talked about this uh, when we spoke about uh, uh, no. They combed his standards. He was flayed. Yes, uh, we spoke about this, if you remember, when we talked about why bad things happen to good people. Um, so this is one of the primary discussions, Rabbi Tiva, the greatest of the Tanaim, the greatest of the Mishnahic era rabbis. Uh, and they're scraping off his skin with metal spokes. And what's Rabbi Tiva doing? He's saying the Shema. And his students say to him, they said to him, so much? That's the question. So much? Like, now with this, now you're saying the Shema? Listen to his response. Rabbi Kiva says, Rabbi Kiva says to them, every day of my life I was sad when I read the verse that says with all your soul. The verse that we read today. Every single day he was sad. Why? Because what does it mean with all your soul? Even if God takes away your soul, you have to love God. And I said, Rabbi Kiva's talking, when will this opportunity come to me and I can fulfill it? And now, when the opportunity came, should I not fulfill it? So, Rakiva's being tortured and being killed in the most horrific fashion. And he's saying the Shema. And the people are like, now you're saying the Shema? And he tells them, this is, no, you guys missed it. Not like, now this is the most outrageous time to say the Shema. This is the opportune time to say the Shema, because now I'm actually fulfilling what it says. I'm actually fulfilling the Shema. I'm actually doing with all your, with all your soul. And not only that, Every day he was sad that he wasn't doing this. Which seems bizarre, because you and I would say, listen, it's, it's suboptimal to be presented with such a question, right? <laughs> You'd rather not be presented with a question. If it does, then you're forced to, you know, to negotiate with this, uh, you know, with this problem that you're being presented with. But ideally, you would rather, you know what? I'm with you guys in that. You know, no, we don't want to die, even if it means dying for the cause. What are the is telling us? That there's this ideal that every day he was that he couldn't fulfill it. And now was the happiest day of his life because now he could finally fulfill this mitzvah, which is the ultimate of all mitzvahs. 
And then he was saying the word Echad, and then he, he passed away. Um, so to me, this is remarkable. And of course, if we had any doubts about uh, the simplicity with which we can actually fulfill this verse, I think uh, it's pretty clear now that it's not actually that easy. Rabbi Kiva, our great teacher, he's showing us what someone like, someone like him actually feels when they say the Shema. They feel upset. They feel like they're lacking because this is a mitzvah they cannot fulfill. It's, it's, I think it's very beyond you know, what we would imagine. But it's something that at least shows us what's possible. You know, it shows us what's possible and what Rabbi Tiba considers to be an ideal. Um, when the Rambam, Maimonides, when he organizes his major, major book, which is actually a collection of books, uh, 14 books, on all of Judaism, he starts off with the most important, and that's God and faith. And the first four chapters are what we would call theology. The fifth chapter is about sanctifying God's name, Kiddush Hashem. Now, Kiddush Hashem means a lot of things. means, for our purposes, we'll translate it as the ultimate of crowning God upon ourselves and the ultimate of Tikkun Olam where God's name is being pronounced publicly even uh, at at great cost Uh, the fact that the Rambam brings this right after theology right right after God you know the lessons about God itself that tells us that this is the full actualization of life as a Jew but he even says it. He says that there's nobody like these people. And, you know, it's obviously unfortunate when tragedy happens and people die for being Jewish. And obviously it's not a, it's not, that's not a good thing. Uh, but for that person, that's the best thing for them. I'm saying the best way to go. Because that just, it's, the, it's a transcendental um, life that you have lived now. Because you have actually paid the ultimate price as a way of expression of what you believe. Uh, Thus, yes, it's not ideal, I would say, but in a weird way, those people are lucky because they, we don't ask for this, of course, um, and it's obviously very tragic, but in truth, they have opportunity that we, that most people don't, don't get presented. And we know Jews historically have always, almost always stood up to the test and have actually, at this critical point of decision, they have opted, you know, to go along the path of Rabbi Kiva and the great martyrs of of Judaism. Obviously, it's not. I don't think it's inspiring necessarily, um, but it but it certainly is demanding, and it at least shows us how, you know, how long of a road there is to travel when we read the Shema. Um, how do you get to love God? How do we get there? We know where we need to get to love God entirely with all our money, with all our resources, with all our hearts, everything. Total submission. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you have an ideal that is relegated to the mind? How does that affect the body? 
how do we actually bridge this gap? No matter what you know, that's not necessarily going to inf- impact what you do. But here the Torah is putting these verses together. You've got to know it, and then you've got to do it. Well, how do you do it? How do you get to doing it? How do you go from knowing it to doing it? It's a good question, right? So what? I think it's uh, viewing viewing the creation of for me it is anyway. Making it experiential. How do you get to feel it in the heart? It is when you can relate it to you as a person that the the head can come into. So you're saying it's it's an active cognitive function where you like mentally demand yourself to feel it. No, you have to first feel it, and then the head follows the heart. Well, that's not the process that it's that we have over here. But what if you are doing it? But what if you if you start with feeling it? If you start with feeling it, then what if you feel something else? Suddenly you feel one day you don't feel it. So what happens then? If you continue with it, you will. So you say action. So this they're saying if you do action, well then the action bridges the gap between what you feel and what you know. I agree. It all has to do with free will. Okay. I mean, where did, when do you develop this concept, you know, good and evil and what's right? Forgetting about necessarily Jewish good and evil, but just general, you know, being good to other people and stuff like that. Uh, it's a difficult decision. But like, you know, you're certainly not when you're one and two years old, you're not thinking about these things. So it comes, comes later. But the Bible does also tell you to train up a child in the way it should go. You know, children don't wake up by osmosis and have character. It, it's built step by step by step. What about these poor kids in, in Ethiopia and Rwanda sitting with all the flies all over them and stuff? And where are they getting this uh, feeling? Maybe they're not. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> there are a number of studies that, for example, if you smile every day, that it actually lifts your mood and makes you happier. So instead of being happy, so you're smiling, you're smiling, so you become happy. So that's the same, fake it till you make it. Right. And you know, if you do good deeds, then it becomes something that you want to do. Even though if at first you're reluctant, you're saying, what good does this do, or whatever. As it becomes habit, it becomes mm-hmm. part of This is like feeling good when you're giving away something rather than getting it. So, uh, Where did it come from? I think what, a lot of what you're saying is actually is actually um, what I wanted to say. Um, there's a, a Safri, so Talmud. Uh, and they say that how do you get love? How do you love the God, the, the first verse of this paragraph? 
Go read the next verse, the next sentence. Let these matters that I command you today be upon your heart. We're trying to open up the heart. Well, how do you do that? Right? Having the words be upon your heart, right? When you have the words of the Torah, the words that we're talking about right now, if that is actually something that, you know, that, that, that you're exposed to, right? You study it, as, as I said, you teach it to your kids, you speak it, you study it at all times, in your house, while you walk on the way, when you go to sleep, when you wake up. So we say the Shema in the morning and at night. If you just do it, like we said, then it, 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 it influences you. And then we remind ourselves of it. Bind them as a sign upon your arm and let them be filling between your eyes. Write them on your doorposts. So it's really saying two things. Do it and remember it constantly. Say it, see it, and bind it. Right? Study it. That's the way, that, that's the way to go about doing it. Maimonides does give a, a very, very similar progression about how someone moves up the path of incentives. You know, he says, you have a little kid, you want to teach him Torah, you say, oh, he give you a candy, you can study Torah. And then he gets a little older, and he's like, he wants clothing, and then he wants money. And then he's, he's much older, and he wants respect. He wants people to call him rabbi. <laughs> and he wants to be respected. And he wants to sit in front of the shul, you know. Uh, but all these are ways to hopefully reach the end goal, which is someone doing it for it itself, for its own value. So that's that. I, I think if we just had read um, the first of the three, we would have plenty of work <laughs> ahead yeah. of us. Um, I want to I quickly go through the next two here. Um, if someone feels like they, if somebody needs to go, don't hesitate to go. Um, because we, we, we're going to go through it. If you need to go, don't, don't feel bad at all. Now, let's read the next, the, the, the next uh, section. The next section really is a very different vibe to it. And it will come to pass that if you continue hearken to my commandments, remember, this is not a con- continuous. This is uh, several chapters later. We actually read it yesterday in the Parsha. It was last week. Yesterday we read it in the Parsha. That's right. And it will come to pass if you continually hearken to my commandments that I command you today to love Hashem your God and to serve Him with all your heart, with all your soul. So A, it's, it's like essentially saying if you do what we described in the first verse, in the first section, then I will provide rain for your land in its proper time, the early and late rains, that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. I will provide grass in your field for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. So now it's introducing the idea of reward and punishment. Right? Not only that, uh, it's also introducing the idea of my commandments. So that we, that we haven't seen yet. So now it's expanding the discussion, not to always say the, the core commandments, but all the commandments, all the Torah. It's opening up the womb. Like I said, this, this is everything. This, these, these, uh, these, um, uh, these three uh, paragraphs. But it's also just the idea of reward and punishment. 
And we have mentioned previously that reward and punishment is a very central element of Jewish philosophy. And even though, ideally, we ought not to act as a result of reward and punishment, because that's like the kids saying, I want to do what's right because I don't want to be punished, or I'll get some allowance, or I'll get some candy, or some clothing, or some respect. That is, that is not a good reason to, to act. The best reason is to act for what it is, essentially, that you're, that you're doing. Uh, but we find um, that reward and punishment is still central to, to Jewish philosophy. And in fact, not only that, Maimonides tells us that if we did not have reward and punishment, if that was not part of the framework of, of the structure of Jewish philosophy, the entire uh, framework would crumble. So it's not only, it's A, important, it's one of the crucial important elements of, 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 of the Jewish uh, system of, of life. And if we did not have it, we wouldn't have anything else. But the question is, why not? Yeah, but the question is, how could you tell me that if we did not have reward and punishment, we wouldn't have anything else? Why would we not have anything else? We still have everything else, just no reward and punishment. Yes, but what about reward and punishment makes our life work, our Judaism work, our life have meaning even? When when we accept it, let's let's, let's, let's zoom out a little bit here. Once, Once we talk about free will, like we mentioned, or our actions mattering, or our actions having purpose to it, our life having purpose to it. You know, that's obviously we want to live a life that's purposeful. We don't want to be sitting here and all the effort that we do, you know, is for naught. We want our actions to matter. Our life to matter. What happens if our life doesn't matter? Our, uh, then what are, we, what are we here for? We just, we, it doesn't matter either way. Now remember, once you accept the idea of God, you start at point A. So we have God. Uh, and therefore we have everything being created for a purpose. Because intelligence doesn't do something, and certainly not something as complex as the world that we see it, uh, for no reason. So if there is a reason, there's, there's got to be a purpose. There has to be a purpose for the world. Now, that's step one to step two. So once we accept God as, as, as being a true fact, we have to accept that, that this world has a purpose. We have deduced, very logically, that us humans are the purpose. Why? Because we are the ones whose actions really matter, whose actions change. Right? That's the idea of free will. We're the ones that have free will. And therefore our actions, because it's not being governed by anything ex- uh, external, we're not being mandated uh, by anything external, in most cases. Uh, therefore, our actions are what give life's purpose. Now, if our actions didn't matter, would li- life would have no purpose. If our actions did not have consequences, then our actions would be inconsequential. And our entire life would have no purpose, and therefore the world has no purpose, and that's not true. Thus, the fact that our actions matter, that is what gives life purpose. So essentially, reward and punishment is something that we're very happy to have. We're happy to have the reward and the punishment. Because that means that our actions really matter. Our life has a purpose. We're not just, uh, we're not just 
uh, um, um, ants meandering about or particles just crashing or crashing about. Our, where our life matters. Our decisions are important. It's a very, you know, it's a very happy thing to, that, you know, that we have. And of course, it does mean reward, of course, and some punishment probably for everyone. But it means that we matter. Our lives matter. Our actions matter. The punishment's feedback. Huh? The punishment is just your feedback. True, true, true. Now, I also think the fact that there's, um, uh, th- there's joy to that, you know? The fact that what we do matters for good and bad, it's like the knowledge of knowing, or as parents we know that when your child does something, you care about what the child does. Right? It's important to you. It matters. Therefore, you reprimand when necessary, and you reward when necessary. When you see the neighbor kids, neighbor's kid misbehaving, you don't care. We're happy that God cares about us. We're happy. And of course, it comes with some reprimandation. Of course, we know that. Yeah? But that gives joy, and that gives meaning to life. So we talk about this reward and punishment, and it kind of doesn't really seem to fit in. Like, this is not about reward and punishment. This is about life. And it's telling us that, yes, our actions, that, you know, the decisions that we, all this effort that we're going to invest in loving God and bridging that gap in the years that we have to spend according to the Rambam, well, that actually matters. So what happens with these, all these people who live in third world? That's a big uh, concern of yours today. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm mean, sure it's a concern, but here we're talking about people who are living in a very civilized those that have these concerns and thinking about God and not God and this and that are all in a civilized community. If you're sitting there in the, the Horn of Africa, or, you know, in Somalia, and the, well, actually they are, they have Islam. <laughs> so, but uh, the ones that are really starving and all this, there's no thought about good. Yeah, but there's, there's no, but there still is, there is there's free purpose. will at their level. At their level, the decisions that they have to make, I think some of them are very grave uh, uh, free will decisions. I don't think you can say that just because they, you know, they cannot sit and have, have such a discussion because they have too many other pressing needs to tend to. That doesn't mean that they don't have free will. You know, how are they going to? Are they going to be brutal? Are they going to be, you know, have, you know, have good families? Are they going to uh, be good people? Are they going to be contribute positively? That's their areas of free will. Uh, they don't have Torah, remember. They don't need to have Torah. No, but I mean, this, that's the secondary group. When we really get down to the, the people who are just sitting there, not getting their food, dying of horrible illnesses that, you know, like young children, and uh, all that stuff, it's just, it, it can't be those thoughts. I would say that, uh, thankfully, we have, it doesn't, it's not thoughts, it's more, I would say more actions. You know, but w- the point uh, at which their free will choices are is very different than ours. Yeah. And I think we should be happy that, that we can make more highbrow free will choices. Did you see that article the other day? And I only caught the headlines of it. But it was a group of girls. And I don't know whether they were Yehudi or not. But for the sake of argument, let's just say they were. But they were captured to be sex slaves. And rather than be the sex slaves, uh, they refused to be the slave. And so they were slaughtered. And I got to thinking about that. Rather than being a sex slave, these people chose to be slaughtered. Yeah, there were some Chechnyans who were playing games with the uh, pretending to do the sex slave thing. It was an anti-ISIS thing. But, uh, no, they didn't get yeah, they were, they were ISIS slaves. Yeah. And um, 
like 17 girls. And I thought, my God, what a choice. They chose slaughter over being sex slaves. We're all looking for the, the world to come. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Um, we say that the righteous of the Gentiles have a portion of what to come. You know, I know. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the next here. Let's move a little further. Beware, lest your heart be seduced, and you turn astray and serve gods of others and bow to them. Then the wrath of Hashem will blaze against you. He will strain the heavens so there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its produce, and you will be swiftly banished from the goodly land which Hashem gives you. Place these words of mine upon your heart and upon your soul. Bind them as a sign on your arm. Let them be filled between your eyes. Teach them to your children, discuss them while you sit in your home and while you walk on the way, when you retire, when you arise. And write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Once again, we see the importance of this last section. Now, let's go back to the first sentence that we just read. Beware, lest your heart be seduced. And you'll start worshiping other gods. How does a heart get seduced start worshiping other gods? Remember, it's a heart, it's not the mind. You would think that if... You know, if someone came to idolatry, that's a theological decision. Well, maybe then it's governed by the mind. That's what you would think. Maybe. But here it's saying, let your heart not be seduced. Maybe the heart is too strong. Yeah, or the emotions or the feelings. Yes. Um, my grandfather here writes something very interesting. This is to me that this jumped out of the page uh, um, when I read this. And he says like this. There's a verse that says a little later on in Deuteronomy that says, that talks about Moshe preparing the Jewish people to go to the land of Israel. We know that the book of Deuteronomy is essentially Moshe's last month on earth, and, and he is preparing the, la- the nation for going to the land of Israel, and he warns them countless times, when they go to the land of Israel, don't do idolatry. That's the thing that he warns them more than anything else. Besides for a generic, not generic, but uh, just general uh, admonitions to observe the Torah and to guard the Torah and to do the Torah. But there's one verse that says that, that you're going to see the disgusting things that the, that the, that the Gentiles do and it describes it in, 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 uh, in, in terms of feces. And in fact, we know there was an ancient um, uh, there was an ancient idol um, where the practice was to actually uh, defecate in front of it. That was actually how they practiced it. And, and then the verse goes on to say, be careful when you see that to not actually have your heart turn towards that and adopt that yourself. Right. The question is, why would someone, like, that's the most, that doesn't sound very appealing, right? Well, what's the appeal? Like, what's the appeal of your heart going out like, ah, duh, how, where do I sign? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's the appeal? So my grandfather writes like this. He says, there's only one thing that would cause the Jew to do this. Only one thing. And that is that the people would look at the Jews who's not participating, what everyone else is doing, as you're just some, uh, you're a Neanderthal, you're primitive. You're not advanced. You don't see it, you know? And you're not modern. And that's why you don't understand why we're doing this idolatry. And he writes over here, bold letters, and there's nothing in the world more difficult than to <coughs> absorb the pain of someone considering you not modern. Backwards. 
archaic, arcane. But it's being excluded from the tribe. You're different. You're weird. You're odd. You have bizarre ideas. And to me, and, and then he says, like, and therefore, nothing will make your heart go astray, even your heart, your emotions, your feelings, right? Uh, as powerfully as this feeling of not being the weird, the weird outcast. You know, even if it's something as nauseating and distressing as what they're actually doing. So I was thinking today, like, I, I had met, well, I shouldn't say this, but either way, I, I've seen some people um, from my synagogue and seen them out, out and about, you know, not in the neighborhood, so to speak. And I was surprised a few times to see people walking around without kippahs. Now, I don't know if it's a big deal or not. Um, without or with? Without. And it's surprising, like these are quote-unquote orthodox, like the part of the shul, and it's bizarre, like in their offices or in their, you know, when they go to Costco and they're not wearing one, and it seems very strange. Even now, the I'm Secretary not, of Treasury, he's an orthodox Yeah, Jacob Liu, he doesn't wear a kippah. He doesn't wear a kippah. Okay, well, that, maybe that's a little different. He's in the national spotlight. Yeah. What difference does that make? You're justifying. Yeah. I'm not trying to justify, but I'm, I'm just saying it's a little different. Well, no, it's not. I'm not, I'm not even going to deal with the... the not hal- judging. I'm not judging anyone, right? But uh, not, let's not deal with the halakhic implications. Uh, it's not so clear. You have to even halakhically wear a kippah. I'm not even saying you... I'm not going to go out and tell you you have to. Uh, but to me, it seems like this is maybe something that people don't want to be judged, you know? I, I was in a they Target... They stand out. I was in a Target parking lot uh, last Thursday. I think it was Thursday. It was either Wednesday or Thursday. And I have a little... You know, hanging uh, bumper in front of my car. I don't know if you ever had that. Um, and there's sometimes it happens to me twice already, where some guy pulls over to me and is like, "Oh, I can fix that for you for six hundred bucks or whatever." And then you know, I was like, "Oh!" And I saw the guy coming over to me, and you know, in this car, the most beat up car you've ever seen, which is interesting. <laughs> and uh, and he and he tells me, he's like, "Oh, I can fix that for you. I work for Sterling McCall. I can fix that." And I said, "Sorry, not interested. You know, I don't. I'm not interested, right?" He's like, oh, come on, well, you know, you look, look at it. So I said, not just. He's like, oh, oh, you're a Jew. You got your cheap. And he drives off. <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't say it quite as nicely as I said it. I'm like, whoa. And I know, I know I'm a target for that kind of behavior because I, you know, I look like a Jew, you know. And maybe people are scared of that, you know. People don't want to be judged like that. And I think that that's, it's similar to this. It's, it's where... Someone doesn't want to do what they maybe know is right because what other people are going to do, like the social uh, effect. I which is, which is, which is, which, is, which is, you know what? And if, I'll, get this, I'll get this second, Bernie. But um, it seems very strange because, like, if you know something is true, like if you're, we, we think that our intelligence really governs all. That's what we think. But in reality, we're much more social than we even realize. And the power that the social has wields upon us is is tremendous. And this is a major, major problem when what we believe intellectually is maybe not so popular so, like, societally. You know? you know, people deride or mock those that have true faith. And that exists as being lunatics, as being fanatics, as being weird, as, as being you know, uh, not modern. But that's a major, major challenge. And even though intellectually we could be convinced of that, societally we're going to face that problem. And that's what I'm saying. Don't, don't be seduced. Don't your, let your heart be seduced. Your heart could be seduced to do even the most vile and disgusting things. Um, I feel a little bit uh, sanctimonious 
saying it because I know I have felt in the past that like I'm working on my tzitzis here. And like, I, you know, I got the kippah and I got the white shirt and I got the tzitzis. You, you know, have the tzitzis hanging out. No, I didn't say that. We got the tzitzis a little bit. The tzitzis is the, is the third session is the tzitzis. We'll get a second. You know, but you know, I've you walk into a place, you're in a, you know, you're going to a ball game or you're going to a mall. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of I don't know, like there's no, Arabs no. here. You know, don't ask for it. Maybe tuck them in. So I, I, I myself feel the same way. So I'm not judging anyone. I'm entirely sanctimonious if if I do something. I'm judging. But this is something that we're going to have to contend. That's a very important thing we remember about that. You were saying, Bernie. Oh, no. That's not, not, that, not that important. The seat, you mean, the, I was going to say something else, but it's not important. But the teachers, uh, if, you, if you can wear them in, they don't have to hang out. Why would you want to do that? Let's hold that thought for five minutes. We'll get to it. <laughs> we have a... Uh, Buddhist monastery up in our neck of the woods, oddly enough. And uh, the monk, we have two monks that reside there. And they, when we used to have a Walmart, they'd just go shopping in the Walmart all the time in their monk garb, you know. And everybody treated them very nicely. They didn't ever have any problems that I know of. That's because they're not Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason. <laughs> now, what about Jewish women? They're hiding this because they have no outward symbols. They're hiding what? Well, I, I'm not even necessarily hiding it. I know my wife. My wife, my wife always covers her hair, you know, always. Um, so, and she doesn't change no matter what society says. So, you know, but she's, you know, she sometimes wears a wig, and that's indistinguishable. You wouldn't tell. Can't tell. Uh, but um, I don't know. It's a good question. Maybe. But we wear and you put them in? <laughs> I don't wear one. I don't wear it. Because I, and there's also the judging thing. Like I used to wear a hearing, and I never wore anything that showed I was Jewish. So, you know, anybody asked whatever I'm open about these years, but I would never wear one if I'm holding a hearing. Because the people who lose might start with the damn Jews, you know, they blah, 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 blah. And start judging everybody. It's interesting. Um, I had a, f a, f a friend, student, um, when I was in Israel, um, who was becoming uh, more involved in their Judaism, who had a sister that was living in the Church of Scientology. He was like caught up in that cult, whatever. Um, and he was telling me um, some of their practices, what they do, because they know that obviously they're at a disadvantage because everyone in the world thinks they're kooks. So if you're trying to get new recruits, you're primary job is going to be to try to make, to get rid of this social uh, hindrance, so to speak. Because, you know, if you, like, want to get involved in the Church of Scientology, uh, everyone that you tell that is going to say, you're a weirdo, and that social pressure will pull you out. So he was saying, he was describing how the, um, what they do to you, like, uh, the, that they, 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 like, poop you out, they do weird things, and they, like, start staring at you, and they kind of try to uh, make you desensitized towards what other people think of you. And if you don't, you know, if you don't care what other people think of you, well, then they have free reign to do, uh, to do whatever they want. And by the way, this is how society changes at large. You know, how is it possible that so many people change their opinions so fast, so broadly? Well, because we're very social. And therefore, if everyone says, you know, think about it, you know, in, 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 in 1996, when, that's, that's not even 20 years ago, it's nothing. 
but then Clinton signed a, a DOMA, Defense of Marriage Act, right? Now, the numbers of, of supporters for legalization of marriage was tiny. And now it's more than, it's the majority. How, how does that happen? Is it because we, each, each one of us independently, each one of us, but each one of, every member of society independently reached their own uh, intellectual conclusion? No, no. It's nothing to do with that. It's just that if you are against gay marriage, well, then you're a homophobe. Who wants to be a homophobe? Who wants to be derided? No one. Okay, fine. Join on board. You know, that's the process. Now, I'm not making a statement on, on that. I'm just saying that's an example of how this works. Scientology thrives on obsessive compulsive disorder. They have all, that's how they make their money. They have all these things that try to get all these obsessions and things like that. Yeah. The people start leaving. Even Tom Cruise, I think, is thinking of leaving the church. Recently, recently, last month or so. there's more wives where that came from. Um, (laughs) 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 And the other guy, what's his name? Are people no, aware no, of it? I mean, that's not something as a child, like when I was younger, but I never, I never knew the second part of it. I didn't even know if there was a second paragraph or a third paragraph. I mean, I mean I've read it before. This is not the first day I saw this, but it just opened my eyes because I mm-hmm. didn't realize there was this percussion. We did in the reform. I mean, I grew up in conservative, you know, temple. We always read all three parts. But, but I never the reform, read it in Okay, well, uh, you know, this this is the full. Uh, yeah, no. Okay. I mean, read the whole thing and kissing the titsis during the Vayoma part and all that. Okay, let's finish. Let's finish this chapter, th- this section. In order to prolong your days and the days of your children upon the ground that Hashem has sworn to your ancestors to give to them, like the days of the heaven on earth, which, by the way, is obviously the continuation of this reward and punishment theory that uh, uh, um, that. Um, that uh, our role of this middle uh, chapter that we're going to have long days and we're going to be in the land of Israel and that our uh, God has sworn to our answers to give to them by the way another this is used in the Talmud as a proof for the resurrection the Talmud brings about 15 different proofs textual proofs for the resurrection here it says um, in order to prolong your days and the days of your children upon the ground that Hashem has sworn to your answers to give to them give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob well, how do you give to Abraham and Isaac unless they come back? Interestingly. Let's go on to the last chapter here. Can I ask a question? Go ahead. The, that last phrase, 
Yeah, I didn't think I didn't think about that. I, w I would want I would want to take a look exactly to see what the uh, commentaries say about like the, the maybe yeah because it, it is talking about res resurrection. Resurrection is an entire entirely different phase of the existence of, of life. Yeah, I'm gonna put that in the in the notes here to look it up afterwards. Uh, let's throw the last verse here. And Hashem said to Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel and say to them that they, that they are to make themselves tzitzis." These guys on the corner of the garments throughout the generations, they are to place upon of each corner a thread of tchelos. Tchelos is a blue dye of a chilazon. Chilazon is some sort of animal, some sort of snail. It's not clear which animal it is. It's a subject of, subject of huge debate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, oh, did. I, I missed that. We spoke about that. I read about it. Uh, okay, that's a good question. You see, the blue is no blue here. No blue. So, okay, we're not going to be done before twelve. Um, <laughs> so, like this. Um, first of all, it's that's okay. That's okay. Um, so there is a mitzvah to have tzitzis, and then one of them, one of the one of the streams ought to be blue. So. Um, problem is, is that this blue is a very specific blue. Uh, it's a blue made out of the blood of some animal that's called Snail. a chilazon. Some right. What the animal is is a subject of huge discussion and, and controversy. In the late 19th century, there was this one rabbi. He said that he made it his life goal to try to find this animal, and he found what he thought was the animal, but it was ultimately disproven as not being the right animal. From some of the proofs, like for example, it would fade. This color does not fade. Um, and then they found another one, which now most people agree is the right one, but it's not universally accepted as being the right one. Plus, there's a whole question of does it have to be based upon, does it have to be based upon a tradition or not? So can you reinvent it, or maybe some other animal? So that's why today uh, most people don't 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 do the tails. And if you look at the verse, actually. What it says here, if it breaks it down here, um, speak to children of Israel and say they, should, they made scissors on the corner of the garments throughout the generations. Uh -huh. And then when it says on a place in the scissors of each corner a thread of tchis, it doesn't say throughout the generations. So that is one of the proofs used that if you, don't, you do not have tchelas, if you don't have that blue dye, uh, you're still good to go because it's not generational. So long, if you have it, great. If you don't have it, then you don't have it. That's why you're for sure good if you don't not if you, you don't have the, the blue dot. Um, a lot of people I know, um, they actually do do get the blue dots very very expensive. It's like a hundred dollars to get them. It's like, it's like a gentian blue. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. And it shall constitute citizens for you, and you may see it and remember all the commandments that Hashem. Uh, of Hashem and before them. By the way, it says, and, and you see it, the tradition, or the, not the, the, the custom that exists in some yeshiva communities to wear their tzitzis outside of their, their clothing, that comes from this verse, to see it. It's easier to see it when it's in, outside than when it's tucked inside. <coughs> but it's not obligatory. To, no one would say it's obligatory. That's the reason why, to answer your question. Go back to that. And not explore after your heart and after your eyes, after which they, you stray, after which you stray. Now, if you notice, it says that you see it, you see the tzitzis, and remember all the commandments of Hashem. How many commandments are there? How many commandments are there? 
Okay. Everyone's familiar with the, the term gematria? Gematria, everyone's heard that term? Yeah. Numerical values for Hebrew letters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is how you spell tzitzis in Hebrew. This stands for 90. This is 10, right? Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zayin, Chet, Tet, Yud, 10. And then Chaf is 20. Lamed, Mem, Nun, Samach, Ein, Pei, Tzadik is 90. And then um, Kuf is 100. Reish is 200. Shin is 300. And Taf is 400. So 400 plus 10 plus 90 plus 10 plus 90 equals 600. How many streams are there? Right. You got you got eight strings and five knots. So you see one, two, three, four, five knots plus four and four, which is eight. Six hundred plus eight plus five, six thirteen. Booyah. So in the name itself and the tits itself, they represent the six hundred thirty Now, what else are the tits? They're also ropes. The strings. Major says that man in life is compared <coughs> to a person who is overboard of a ship. You're overboard. And you're thrashing about in a dangerous sea. And then the captain comes and throws you a lifeline. And you pull yourself up. Right? Us! We're that person who's strewn about. We're in danger. There's chaos everywhere. We can mess up. God is throwing us into the stream. The stream is represented by the tzitzis, which is the Torah, which is the mitzvahs. When we, when we save ourselves from danger and we come close to God. That's what life. And thus, sit is representative of all the mitzvahs. We put them in four corners. Everywhere you look, you should see them. Remember them. Uh, and the last thing that it talks about is so they may remember and perform all mitzvahs, all, all, all my mitzvahs, all my commandments, and be, hol- and be holy to your God. I am Hashem, your God, who was removed from the land of Egypt to be a God to you. I am Hashem, your God. It is true. Uh, last thing we mention is the, uh, once again, we um, uh, circle back to God. And we talked about God taking us out of the land of Egypt, which is the most significant event in all of human history, or string of events. Uh, and that is an event that always uh, bolsters our faith when we think about it. So, in conclusion, sorry for going over time again. Uh, I think it's a very safe to say now, we've studied it in its entirety, that there's a lot of work ahead of us, and the Shema is more than just 248 words that we, could, that we say. It's 248 words that can really change our life because they represent what the Torah is, is what Judaism is all about, what the Torah what demands of every, of, of every Jew. Uh, and if we do seize this opportunity to try to actually inculcate these thoughts into our lives, it will be, it'll be very impactful. It makes a lot of sense now that the uh, clarion call of the Jew is Shema Yisrael. You know, it made sense to us we say this in the morning and at nights uh, because this is who we are as a nation and this will guide us to become the great people that we can and must uh, in our Judaism. Thanks a lot, everyone. We'll see everyone next week. Good morning. A lot of fun as usual. Once again, I apologize, apologize, apologize for going over time. What part of this is in the mezuzah? So the mezuzah has the first two. The first two paragraphs mentioned in the mezuzah. You see that? First, the first and the second, they mentioned the mezuzah, they're both included in the mezuzah. The first and second also mentioned the tefillin, they're included in the tefillin. And the tefillin also has two more sections, like the, the, the tefillin of the head has four compartments. One of them has the first paragraph, one is the second paragraph, and then there's two more paragraphs from the book of Exodus that, that mention tefillin, and that's included as well. I had no idea we were going to talk about this today, but I asked you for the growth oh, for my That's great. Process. Like